You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want to invite you now, if you will, to join me in Psalm 119. This has been a book of the Bible that we've been walking through together as a church, and, and we will pick up there in verse 121 today. And so if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to make your way to, a, to, a, a, to a, an app or to a, a device or a website that will get you that. But in, in addition, you'll also see a Bible that may be under the seat that you're sitting on or under the seat rack in front of you. And so I want you to make your way there. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Even if this is one of the first times you've ever opened the Bible, I want to encourage you. There, uh, we find here that there, there are treasures we find in this text, whether this is the first or the thousandth time that you've opened it. And so as a church, it's, it's, one of our, it's one of our commitments to simply let this Bible speak. And so we regularly walk through books of the Bible. And, and so this, for the last several weeks, is our journey through the longest chapter in the entirety of the Bible. It is full of 22 stanzas, each eight verses long, that are in acrostic style. That is, each stanza begins with a consonant of one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we find ourselves in these four consonants or four stanzas, ayin, pei, you'll see in there in ESV, tzade, and kof. And, and these four we're going to co- commit ourselves to reading through. And, and I want to remind you as best I can that Psalm 119, like other psalms that are hymns and songs and poems of celebration, but Psalm 119 is a celebration, a hymn concerning all that God offers us in his word, that which he has revealed to us in creation. And even we find that the stars declare his handiwork. But also in the scripture, that is that guided by the Holy Spirit, people experienced what God was doing and wrote it down as sacred history for us to learn from and good news for us to receive. Until finally the Gospels, that is John chapter 1, tells us that the Word of God, in fact, was in the beginning and that Word became flesh incarnate, took on a body that is in Jesus Christ. And so we sing, in, in this sense, we kind of, we could sing this as a, a hymn, we could sing or like, or meditated on it, upon it as like a poem, but in the end, it, it's a celebration and a commemoration of all that God has revealed to us, finally and completely in Christ. And so we've been walking through this together, and I want to invite you as we, as we pick up there where we left off in verse 121. I'll give you that last little warning I've been giving you, is that it's possible that this might be the most boring sermon series I preach. I'm well aware of that. It's incredibly repetitive. However, It's also possible if this sets deep into your own soul, if you take this to heart, this might be the most life-transforming sermon series that I've preached. So beginning in verse 21, as we think upon how we experience renewal, transformation, and hope. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been 
broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pants because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live With my whole heart, I cry. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. May God not only bless his word this morning, but may God bless his word about his word. You see, in this meditation of the psalmist, I say the psalmist, it's presumed by most authors or by most commentarians that it was in fact David, King David, who is at least responsible for the majority of this, I've been walking through it as best I can, pointing out at each turn why this is actually meant to be a practical tool for living for us. I share with you three, I'll give you one more next week, but three kind of homework assignments each week as we walk through this. One, I want you to begin or end each day with one stanza, eight verses, right? And if you miss a day, okay, pick up the next day, right? Better, it's better than nothing, right? Two, I want you to memorize at least one of these verses 
in the teaching that we're walking through that week. And then three, I want you to then read something else. Read some other passage of Scripture in light of what the psalmist here has asked you to meditate on. And here's what I think. This is written with first-person singular language. I believe this psalm was written for that purpose. It is meant to shape the way we live. But as such, I shared with you that in that sense, it's fairly boring. It's every day. I don't think that's a bad thing because as I shared with you before, the psalmist invites us to consider that the most true things about you are the things that are true about you every day, the things you would never skip. And he's inviting us to consider what our life would look like if the one thing we would never skip is meditating upon, being guided by, finding wisdom and insight from what God says to us. But one of the other reasons why this particular passage can be important and transformative for all of us is what I will simply describe as the functionally high view of Scripture. So if you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm so grateful for your, that you're here. I'm, 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 I'm just especially glad that you're here. In many ways, you're why we exist. And so I want, you to, to invite, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that these things might be true. But also, if that's the case for you, you might regularly see something in Christians, if, if they're, I think if they're, if they're healthy and vibrant Christians and churches, you'll see in us is that we seem to be, probably, if you're on the outside looking in, really obsessed with this book called the Bible, right? We really make a big deal about it. And every Sunday morning we get together and somebody opens our time together by reading from it. We pray about what we've heard, right? And then, and then we sing songs that, that, are, that are words and ideas and themes right out of this book. And, and then someone stands up here and, and talks for an hour about this book, expounding upon its contents. And then, and then we sing more words out of this book. And, and then someone comes into the end and, and sends you off with words out of this book. And I suspect if, if you're watching from the outside, you'd be like, what is the big deal? And I want to invite you to consider this prayer, this meditation of Psalm 119 is the answer it is impossible to take Psalm 119 seriously and not have a very high view of the Scripture. It's also certain to be the case that if you ignore these meditations in Psalm 119, you probably won't much have much use for the rest of this book. You'll find it to be archaic, right? It's outdated. It's old. Isn't there something new? Isn't there something more innovative for us? Rather than what we find here is that this timeless wisdom, did you hear that language? We heard it last week that forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is, it is above and beyond us and it is eternal. And then the last words in this one, did you hear it again? God's word, his law, his testimony, his revelation to us has been founded forever, verse 152 tells us. And so functionally, personally, when you know that, it protects us. It protects us. We, we get a functionally high view of Scripture. And every single Sunday morning that we gather on the Lord's Day to commemorate His resurrection, we hear this good news declared out of Scripture and find hope. We remember things that we forgot. We come to find out places in our lives we didn't even know we were experiencing despair and, and we turn to hope in Christ and this is our rhythm and Psalm 119 for us is how we get there. 
daily, regular dependence upon hearing from and appropriating God's Word. It also protects us, as I've told you before, as we, as we commit to this Scripture, it protects us from all sorts of things. It protects you. It means that as long as someone's up here opening the Bible and expounding upon it, you're protected from mine or someone else's kind of like, like hobby horses or like, like preferences, right? And, and, and when I say something that's right out of God's Word, you can say, amen, that's timeless, it's forever. And if I say something ridiculous, it's just from me, you'll be like, eh, well, it happens. Good thing God's Word is, is forever, right? It protects you. It protects you from me ranting on things that aren't directly addressed by the Scripture. But here's also, it protects me. Because when you know that God's Word is sufficient and it's all we need, it protects me from wanting to perform. I can trust God's word is enough, right? The text is enough. It helps me. It helps me not to have to try to impress you. It's helpful when I think I need to be enough to know that God's word is enough. But it might also be helpful for you when you wish I was enough. And you can say, okay, good thing the text is enough. The guy reading out of it, meh. And so what I would say is like the fifth why that, we, that I think our church could be transformed by the wisdom in this hymn is that it gives us a high view of God's revelation to us in Scripture. It explains in many ways why we are what we are and how we live how we live. And so the themes that are common in these four stanzas in light of that, you'll hear some words over and over again, right? The word testimony was a lot, was, showed up a lot. Give, and the word servant showed up a lot. And then the word righteous showed up a lot. So here's what we find. I think that we trust God and his word to us as servants who await deliverance. You notice the, the context for a couple of these stanzas were that he was, the, the, the writer here is under some sort of attack from outside, was experiencing oppression and injustice, Therefore, wanting in verse 21 to do what is just and what is righteous. And as a servant then, he is awaiting the deliverance that only God can bring. And so I, I would contend that in these four stanzas, we're invited to reflect upon the same. That we might see ourselves as those who entrust ourselves to what God says about us. That his word to us is definitive and sure. And we are merely servants who are waiting upon the Lord to deliver us. So that first stanza, verse 121 through 128, you'll see this, that in the first couple of verses, we're invited to acknowledge injustice and then trust in God's love. Did you catch that? That we acknowledge, he says, I've, I've, I've done what is right. That is, I'm standing up for justice, so don't leave me to the oppressors. Therefore, he says, then give Give a pledge of good. Give a promise that you won't leave me. Don't let the insolent, those oppressors, oppress me. Because in the end, verse 123 and 124, he longs for salvation, and then he wants to be dealt with according to, and this is a buzzword in the Old Testament, your steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, if you were with us over the last year, you, you know a lot about this word. As we concluded our, our series through the book of Judges, we wrapped up last Easter in the book of Ruth. And if you'll remember, the book of Ruth is a case study for this word. It's meant to be this analogy of what is the steadfast love of the Lord like? 
and he introduces us to Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Do you remember this? And it starts off by, by, by a, a profound commitment when people, they should have gone their separate ways and, and instead we see a commitment of steadfast love. I, I'll go with you where your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'll go with you wherever you are. That's, that's steadfast love. And then we see uh, the other steadfast love that's demonstrated by, by Boaz who come, comes in and, and in that sense quite literally is the redeemer of the lineage that becomes the great-great-grandparents of the King David. And he demonstrates his steadfast love and God's steadfast love through him by redeeming this woman, going to great lengths to do so, out of steadfast love. And so he's appealing in the middle of difficulty that he would be dealt with, not according to the world's standards, not according to the way that he's being treated, but deal with me, Lord, according to your steadfast love. Now, this is, remember, one, it's one of the dozen or so according to's that I want you to, as you meditate on Psalm 119, I want it to grab your attention. Each one of them is meant to stop you from thinking, oh, I tend to see the world according to fill in the blank. And, and the psalmist rightly provokes us to saying, no, 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 I want you to measure and think and live according to how God sees things. In this case, according to God's steadfast love. Then in verse 125, he starts to long for God to act, and quite strongly. Did you hear the language? I'm, I'm your servant then. In verse 126, it is time for the Lord to act. Many times in the Psalms, remember, we're invited to use language that would probably otherwise make you feel very uncomfortable. We see this in the last stanza that we'll read in just a moment, that it's, it's very strongly the language of lament, the language of demand, God, come do something. As if to say, God, if you don't do this, then it won't be done. And we're invited, I believe, in verse 126 to look at the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in the world and declare the same thing. It is time. It's time for God to intervene. If God doesn't make right what is broken, we're lost and hopeless. And so in light of God's word, then, we can detest what is false. I'll say more about this next week. It'll be the last of these statements, but you'll hear this. This was, this was also found in previous stanzas multiple times. Therefore, I love your commandments more than even wealth, verse 127 and 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. If it has any hint of falsehood, we hate it. Why? I'll say more about this next week, but when you've tasted the truth of God, everything else is detestable. It's just unsatisfying. So notice what we learn here. We're, we're the servants here and not the master. Just ponder for a minute this prayer and how that works. If someone were to listen to your prayers or if someone were to observe your relationship to God, the creator of the universe, who would they presume exists to serve whom? If someone listens to your prayers, who would they think is the servant and who would they think is the master? Who would they think serves whom? And the psalmist invites us to, to see that rightly and for us in many ways to confess and repent and, and to stop seeing the relationship as simply, I tell God what I need and assume he gets it, right? As though as though God is the waiter and, and we, we somehow tell him what to do. 
And then instead rightly understand it as the psalmist reflects here that that relationship is upside down. And when we meet God and see God for who he really is, then the right and good response is to lay everything down and to pray like Jesus, thy will be done. Most of our prayers are crying out to God, my will be done. And the psalmist says, no, I'm simply a servant. So therefore, in verse 125, give me understanding. Since you're the master, since you're the good master who's going to lead us through this, give me the understanding I need. So I want to touch on a theme that covers both stanzas. So let's start reading. We're kind of looking at verse 129 in the second stanza. But there's a a theme here that shows up nowhere else, but it shows up in these two. It says, your testimonies are then wonderful. I love this. The, The language he uses that wonderful is something that's right out of the book of Exodus. And some of the themes here we see in the book of Exodus show up. The language is incredibly identical. Namely, what is wonderful is God's law. What is wonderful is that God, the creator of the universe, would speak to you and to me, that he'd be mindful of you and me. And so then when we see it as wonderful, when we see the wonder of God, we long for all that he says for us to come to pass. And so then he He gives us a list of things beginning in verse 132 that he wants to happen. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Keep steady my steps. Redeem me from oppression. Make your face to shine upon me. So in light of the wonder of God and the goodness of God that he would speak to you and to me, that he would actually introduce himself, reveal himself to us, then he makes a lot of petitions that he longs to come to pass If God is wonderful, in that language of the covenant promise-keeping God to deliver and to save, in this case for, for the Israelites in oppression and in slavery in Egypt, if the God of creation would be mindful of this people and deliver them, then God bring all of that to pass in us, right? Let us experience that same kind of deliverance. I love that. Be gracious to me. Keep steady my steps. Not according to even the most steady of steps that we could imagine, but according to your promise. What a profound prayer for us to pray in verse 133. Do you hear at the end? Let no iniquity get dominion over me. What would it be like for us to look at the things in our lives that actually own us? They control us. And to long for God to bring his word to liberate us to come to pass. But notice there's a theme in verse 121, verse 122, and then again in verse 134. And that is the theme of oppression, that word oppress. It's right there. This word oppress is found uh, as many as 125 different times in the Bible. And it's found three times, the only three times it's found in Psalm 119, it's found in these two stanzas. That he calls out to God that he would deliver them from oppression. Notice especially even the Psalm 121 and, excuse me, Psalm 119, verse 121 and 122. As far as I'm aware, they're the only two verses in Psalm 119 that don't directly refer to, do you remember those themes? Those eight words, interchangeably, word, testimony, commandment, law, precepts, right? Notice, verse 121 and verse 122 do not refer to them. And they're the only verses that don't. 
I've done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors, right? It doesn't say anything about God's law or his word. 122, give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. And so in this particular case, the only exception in the entirety of Psalm 119, he's saying and inviting us to consider not just the word of God, but the works of God, the acts of God that are consistent with his word. And in this case, the acts of God consistent with his word, his law, his justice, his righteousness, right, his precepts, his commandments, is that he would deliver people from oppression. He would set them free from bondage. Side note here. Oppression is a prominent theme in the Bible. Let me jab. He's not woke. He doesn't talk about Oppression because of critical race theory, because of cultural Marxism, or any kind of Marxism. He's not a social justice warrior. He's not a lib you need to own. He's not a progressive. Notice, people have been murdering, lynching, publicly executing, and extorting since Cain and Abel, since Pharaoh and the Israelites, since Pilate and Jesus, and since the Roman Empire and the first century church. Christians would do well to understand That sin in this world and the brokenness that results causes people to use and abuse other people. I share this with you all the time. Just go serve in Kids Connection. Just go serve, right? Like, those people are like evil dictators on the rise. They They are oppressors. They just don't have any power, right? I mean, they bite. I mean, who bites, right? You're like, like children. You, I've never seen a child learn to bite from a parent. Like that's not. Where does that come from? Our natural instinct is to want our own and not care who it affects. So, friend, I want you to realize the Bible gives us prominent language for this, and it means that our hope in that mistreatment is the grace of God alone. And so then we act for justice in the world in light of that. And so there are two acknowledgments that are made here that I would encourage you to make as well as we acknowledge injustice. It's going it's to come. Like there's, it's just going to continue to come up. We're going to have to address these things through repentance, experiencing grace. And there's two things we need to acknowledge. One is that we can never fully eradicate all injustice. There's just too much. There's too much. Like, there is more than you can fix. And I should like, the grace of God alone will deliver us from the injustice and in just happening in like the toddlers next door, right? But like when that human nature is rampant, when it's given a platform, when it's given power, when it's given influence, then people begin to pay. Look, you know this, right? Isn't this what middle school is for most of you? Right? Somebody presumed better than you and right and in and in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade ways like oppressed you, right? And that they manipulated you to get you to do something you didn't want to do, right? Isn't that isn't that what it is? Isn't that what peer pressure is? See human nature here. This is what happens. And so he's saying in verse 121, I've stood up for what's right, but God, you're the one who's gonna have to lead us out of this. 
So friends, stand up, speak out, like verse 121 says, for what's right, for what's just, for what's good, for what's fair, for what honors God's creation, for what honors the image of God born in human beings. But remember, only God can eradicate it all. There's just too much for us to bear. Here's a second acknowledgement we make. In this life, we can only approximate justice. We can work toward justice, but even then, all we're doing is approximating it. Think of it this way. If, if, I, if I burned your house down, right? And then, and then I paid for everything to replace everything, right? That would be in world standards justice, right? That's fair. I put, I put every, I, like I bought you, I bought you a new house of equal value. That's just as we would see it. But even then, you know that's not true, right? It didn't get you your house back, did it? Right? It, didn't, it, it isn't the same thing. Even if I were to commit murder, I were to kill someone, and I were to pay with the death penalty, a life for a life, right? That's just, a life for a life. And yet you know it, it doesn't bring back the dead, does it? I could go on and on and on. In this life, we speak for, he says here, what is just and right? But verse 22 said, in the end, God, don't, don't, don't let this overcome me because all I can do is approximate justice. God alone can and will make all things right. God alone, in this case, can make all things new. In the meantime, we, did you catch what we do in verse 124? And then we see it again as he hopes in the second stanza. In the meantime, we can but hope in his steadfast love. There is a way to speak out against and work for justice that is not hoping in God's hesed, steadfast love. It's real. Sin is complicated. If, it were, right, if injustice were simple, you wouldn't need God to fix it, right? And beware of anyone who makes it sound simplistic, right? Like, all we need to do is... This. You're like, oh, okay. And so... The psalmist, I believe, gives us a meditation on what it means to live in a broken, fallen world marred by sin, where injustice and oppression and unfairness, inequality, runs rampant, in which, one, we have a voice to speak what is just and right, like here, verse 121, and we have a hope that he will come and restore. He will deliver us. He will make all things new. Look at the third stanza, beginning in, one, in verse 137. We find here something profound that now a word, a theme that stands out from this, you'll see, is the word right or righteous, right? Now, this remember I told you it's hard to pick a theme on some of these particular stanzas. It'd be like if you wrote a, a poem and you wrote eight verses that started with every letter of the alphabet, when you got to like X or Q, that would probably be a, a pretty like incoherent poem, right? Like if I, I said, hey, write me eight verses that begin with Q, you'd be like, right? You're like, what do I write about? And, and you might just find the same word and say, that's what this is going to be about. So, so there's a word here. That this is, there's a not a lot of words that begin with this letter, but one of them, the most important word we see here is the word that tzedek or tzedek is the word righteous. And it's found here multiple times, right and righteous. It's as if like, 
It's as if like the psalmist came upon it like, ooh, I, I know one. I got, I got, and he fills up almost every single verse with this word. Righteous are you, Lord, and right are, you, are your rules. You've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in faithfulness. Again, verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. Trouble and anguish find me out, but your commandments are my delight. Are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me now understanding that I may live. Remember what I told you, we long for, we, we long for God to bring things to pass that he has promised for us. And so what we find here then is in God's word in an encounter with God and his righteousness and, and his righteous word, the result will be love, remembrance, and delight. Did you, did you hear the response? You're righteous. So now then, verse 141, help me to, or start, excuse me, you have appointed your, your testimonies in righteousness. And so then in verse 140, I love that. I love your words. We saw this last week, right? That, that God's word to us, when, when, like an encounter with God is sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than anything. And so therefore he says then our response is going to, to love that. Don't you love to hear from people that you love and admire? Don't you love to hear from them? Side note here, okay? Call your mom today if possible. Wouldn't you love to hear from someone you haven't heard from in a long time? Like, we love those words. And so he's saying, when I hear from God, when I know that I've heard from the mouth of God, then I'm filled with love for what he says to me. Secondly, remembrance. He says, I love it. And then he says in verse 41, even though I'm small and despised, I don't forget. I won't forget your precepts. When you encounter the rightness and goodness of God, you're filled with love for him and his word, but also you begin to remember what's true. What's true and what he says to us comes back to mind and changes everything. And lastly, he says that he is filled with delight. Verse 143, even though trouble and anguish are around him, his commandments still cause him delight. So God is righteous. His word to us is righteous and true. Notice he says, the foes forget. My zeal consumes me because my, because my foes forget your words. A couple observations here. One, this is like, this is me, right? On, on, in some sense, uh, you're not my foes, but every week when I stand up here, open the Bible, and if you're like, well, why is he really all amped up? Why is he talking so loud, right? My hope is that, in some sanctified way, my zeal consumes me because you forgot the good news. And I just know, as I've met with each of you, I, I know all the voices in your life. I know all of the, the crushing burdens that weigh you down. And I know all the ways in which those cause you to forget what's true about you in Christ. They'll never leave you and forsake you. And I up here, I'm going to be as animated and loud and demonstrative as I can to shake you and be like, you forgot, Right? And zeal, I hope, in some sanctified sense, would consume me because you forgot. And if it goes right, you're like, man, I forgot. Now I remember. I remember this. The foes, he says, then forget that. They aren't easily reminded. The enemies of God distance themselves from words about his commands and his 
righteousness over all things. So the foes forget, but in verse 40, he says that the servant loves, and in verse 41, remembers. He does not forget. Enemies forget. But those who have heard God's word of loving kindness and righteousness, we don't forget. We can't forget. We couldn't unremember God's love to us if we wanted to. Because that righteousness, beginning in verse 142 on, is forever. It's forever. The second reflection there of, of verse 139. When's the last time you had zeal because people forgot God's words? Versus when's the last time you had zeal because you felt like your words were transgressed? Remember, I told you this is a theme that shows up that we're to have righteous indignation for God's kingdom rather than the righteous indignation that you and I usually have for our own kingdom. And that word right shows up six times in this stanza, and it ends in a prayer request. Now then, give me understanding in order that I might live. If there was a theme from this stanza, it would be this. Understanding the righteousness of God is the source of life. One commentarian puts it this way, life's adversities should drive us all more to our Bibles because there is abundant life that he longs for, for us in the righteousness of Christ. There's another little nugget of joy in verse 141, isn't it? I'm small and despised, yet what? My standing doesn't affect my dependence upon your precepts. So in this reflection upon righteousness, we encounter what is right and good in the character and nature of God. And while there's many traits to reflect upon in the Bible of the character and nature of God, here's one you can make a note of. You want to reflect upon the righteousness of God. These eight verses are just that. Let's look at the last stanza and wrap up there. Beginning in verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me. He then reflects upon the nearness of evil. Did you catch that? Longs that the Lord would hear his voice. And then he says that those who persecute me with evil, they draw near. So hear, hear, the, hear the poetic language. They're getting closer to me. But as they come closer to me to persecute, he says that they're getting further away from God's word for them. For God's law is precepts. They draw near who persecute me with evil, with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But as they draw near, he says, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Think of it this way. Our God is nearer than evil. That might just be the one thing many of you need to hear. Because maybe you're overwhelmed with the brokenness and stress anxiety that you experience even in maybe this last week. The brokenheartedness, the loss, the disappointment, the despair. It seems more real than anything else. It seems louder than everything else. And we are invited to consider a mystery. Those things aren't as near as you think they are. Our God has come near to us and God's word for us now is commandment 
His word come to us is nearer to us than those things. Our God is nearer than even the most evil things we think. Think about it this way. Our God is even nearer to us than the evil that resides in our own heart. So friend, look what he says here. Cry, right? Cry, call, cry out, call out. With my whole heart. Friend, call out to God because he's near. Cry out to God. We saw this a couple stanzas before. Weep over the state of the world and cry out to God. He will hear you because he is near. And here's the thing. That's a mystery that you will never believe until you experience it yourself. I could stand up here with as much zeal as possible and tell you to do it. And, and even then you'd be like, okay. Well, but the minute you actually cry out to God and give him all that you are with your own, your own whole heart, that, and, and, and in that moment, and only in that moment, will you experience what this text says. You will experience a profound nearness. You will experience an enlivening. Look, we can pray in confidence because we know that we're going to be heard. Sin puts distance between us and God. The Bible calls that enmity. But friend, Christ brings us near again. Now we, we find we can draw near. We can boldly approach this God. So let me give you a few practical observations I think we see here. Remember the psalmist is trying to get us to be captivated by, to be consumed by the character and nature of God. And therefore, in light of experiencing difficulty, we're meant to long for his deliverance knowing that he'll hear us, that he's righteous, he's good. He will deal with us according not to our sin, but according to what? His steadfast love. I love the way that 2 Timothy ends. This is, I think, the, the observation I would make and maybe the, like the, the practical guidance I would give you. Paul, writing one of the last things he ever writes, writes to Timothy about being abandoned and going to prison. He says, At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> it may not be counted against them. Right? That's mercy, right? Hey, no, no vengeance. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Remember what I told you just a moment ago? That these four stanzas invite us to trust God as servants because we know that he will deliver us. Listen what Paul is saying for you and for me in Christ. All that the psalmist longed to experience, you and I have received. We trust God and his word to us as servants who have been delivered. The deliverance that this psalmist longed for, you and I have received freely in Christ. Think about it. All the delight that he, that he speaks of, that he longs for, he, we have been given in Christ. All the oppression of sin that has held us has now been broken. And we are now set free from the bonds of sin, death, and hell, and the grave. All that the psalmist meditated upon 
Every bit of it, you and I have been granted in Christ. So friend, did any of the things that the psalmist longed for in this last, these last four stanzas, like, like poke at your own heart? Did you, do, you be, do you find yourself provoked by the evil and injustice in the world? Do you find yourself provoked by, by, by mistreatment? Do you find yourself provoked by, by the feeling that things are getting worse? Do you find yourself provoked by feeling abandoned or left alone? We find here that Jesus Christ has fulfilled every single one of these promises. Read verse 152. The last word tells us about the way that Christ has fulfilled these promises. Forever. Forever. What God has purposed to do for you and I in Christ is forever. His promises are good and true for you and me and Jesus forever. All of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ forever. Take a deep breath and let that give you rest. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is trustworthy. God, we confess that we are enchanted by and trust in lesser things. We, we long to be entertained and captivated by, by lesser things. And even in many cases, we're overwhelmed by the things we encounter in this world. So God, for those in this room that, that maybe feel just the weight of personal sin, would you begin even now to draw nearer to them than they have ever experienced before, that you would grant them peace and forgiveness? In the depths of their own soul. Maybe for some of us, we're just walking with the scars of wounds that someone has perpetrated against us. Even now, would you begin to reveal yourself as a God of justice? Vengeance is yours. You will repay. You will make all things right. Would you grant us comfort in that? Maybe for those of us, we just feel isolated and alone. Might you overwhelm us with the sense that you are near You have come to be with us and for us in Jesus Christ so that we would never be forsaken. You will be with us every step of the way, even to the end of the age. God, grant us the comfort of the fulfilled promises we are held out to receive by the psalmist. Grant us the peace and the forgiveness. Grant us the hope and the joy and delight that you offer to us in Christ. Let us receive it now by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.